Hi, and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. I'm Kevin Hillier, the host of this program. I'm an author myself, and I'm the lucky one who gets to speak to our authors each week and each episode to talk about uh, their particular work. And uh, delighted to say a repeat offender is back again, I think for the third time. Jeff Apter joins me to talk about uh, a book he's written about Keith Urban, which I'm sure you're going to find fascinating, both the chat and the book when you get your hands on that. Uh, But I'd also like to introduce you to uh, our podcast partners, and that is CSCG. They're the people you should talk to, particularly at this time of the year. If you've got some tax issues uh, you want to sort out, uh, you've got a financial plan that isn't quite working maybe, or a financial plan, maybe you don't have one and you want one, they're the people to talk to. They have experts in all fields, whether it's uh, taxation or superannuation. They can help you out, and they're as close as a phone call. Double nine seven four eight triple three is their number. Jump on the website, cscg.com.au. You'll see the people you're talking to, and you'll see uh, the services they have to offer, and I'm sure you'll find something in there that is going to help you make your financial future a little brighter than it maybe looks right now. So uh, make sure you give them a buzz, Double nine seven four eight triple three. Jeff Apter is a prolific author, uh, has written a lot of books, so I think this is his third time on this program and uh, this time we're talking about a book that he's written about uh, one of the biggest stars in this country and in the rest of the world. The Jeff Apter Production Factory strikes again with another terrific book Uh, and when I say Production Factory I mean that in the nicest possible way because the quality of your books is always top notch. Oh thank you very much yeah it's it's what I do it's my living Um, you know I try to pump out a book a year um it's it's interesting sometimes um, because of scheduling and things they overlap and it looks like I've you know somehow turned out two in a few weeks but uh, you always put a twelve month I put aside twelve months for each project I'm working on and in fact Keith Urban book probably took about uh, twenty five years to write yeah. <laughs> to be honest what you know, attracted what, uh, what attracted you to the Keith Urban story I mean it, it's a great story but what attracted you to it? what what sort of you went ah okay I reckon I should do yeah, something well, on well, this man. Uh, like I say, quite literally, it was 1998, what's that, 24 years ago, I was in Nashville, and um, I was living in America at the time, and there was a big event there called Fanfare, which I guess is the American answer to our Tamworth Festival, which is this week-long country music free-for-all, you know, and of course, being America, it's bigger and better, and um, uh-huh. Keith wasn't performing, but there was an Australian contingent there, I think Troy Cassadaly and Gina Jeffries and a few others. And Keith um, was backstage, just just catching up with some people because he'd been living in America by that time for a few years. And I didn't know too much about him, but um, someone, it was one of the, I think someone's manager, gave me a tap on the shoulder and said, oh, look, there's this Keith Urban. He's done it tough. And, of course, I was a pesky journalist at that time, Kevin, and, you know, as soon as someone said they've done it tough, I've got to find out some more about it. And, uh, you know, I learned um, at that point that he certainly had. He'd, like I say, he'd been in America for a few years. He had. Uh, well, a sniff of success with a band called The Ranch, but then it all fell to get fell apart pretty, um, pretty awfully, um, and ended up with him going to rehab. And it wasn't long after I first encountered him that uh, he did his first stint in rehab. But then, within a year, by 1999, things really started to explode for him. So that that kind of initiated this, this fascination in this guy's story, which, you know, as I've been saying, as I've promoted the book, I don't think a lot of people here really know what he went through to get where he is and where he is in America right now. You know, he's a superstar. Oh, he's a massive star, but he was almost like a mushroom for Australia because he just popped up out of nowhere and we really <laughs> here, I mean, even, even and I was in radio, um, we didn't know a lot about him at all. 
Yeah, look, in country music circles, he was successful. He'd won Star Maker in a, up in Tamworth and a number of golden guitars. But, you know, his audience was, was probably more a rural audience. Um, every now and again, and this is now talking about the 80s and into the early 90s, he'd pop up on things like the midday show, you know, sort of unlikely areas. But he certainly wasn't in the mainstream charts or getting played on commercial radio. Um, you know, it really took success in America, which was a very long time coming, for him to get recognition here. And here's the, the very strange part about his career is even though he is now a household name back in Australia, the, sto- the song he recorded with Pink recently, uh, One Too Many, it's his first top 10 hit in Australia. I, I find that staggering. Yeah, I do and I don't. It, it's really funny because he, he kind of, because uh, I was in, uh, you know, mainstream commercial music radio, he didn't mm. fit he, it, until, until literally that Pink song. He didn't fit into a, into a mainstream radio uh, area for, for for airplay, and and uh, to be honest, radio stations were very much a closed shop um, in those days. They didn't they, they did what they wanted to do according to their format. Not it, it, what the public wanted was not really a major requirement as to what you play. Yeah, that's true. And, and and you know, to be fair, the sound that Keith was chasing was an American country sound. Yeah. You know, country pop, country rock because that was what the music he loved. That was the music he was raised on. You know, he was raised on his father's albums, which were Glenn Campbell, Charlie Pride, Johnny Cash, you know, kind of classic American country stuff from the 60s and 70s that did cross over into the mainstream. And when he went to America, um, it took a bit of a change in direction for him to really succeed because, as I say, not long after I first encountered him, he changed his style quite considerably from sort of a, Oh, country rock, I guess, with the ranch to a much softer, smoother, uh, more ballad-heavy style, which on his first solo records in America, most songs just went crazy. You know, America it was tailor-made for American country pop radio. And this was at the time of, you know, Shania Twain and Garth Brooks and people like that. So his stuff fitted in perfectly and he looked great. He had sex appeal on his side and he was brilliantly marketed by his record company because they pitched him to women. (laughs) You know, they made uh, a female audience aware of this guy. And the funny thing I found when writing about it was that, you know, he's a good-looking guy and he's made these kind of sexy videos and the songs were very heartfelt and romantic. Women would come to his shows and their boyfriends would very reluctantly tag along and then Keith had cut loose on his electric guitar because he's a great guitar player. And the boyfriends were sold too. <laughs> so he, yeah. it was like a twofer, you know. Uh, he really had a lot of appeal for a big, broad audience, not just the the, the audience that fell for those those big romantic ballads that put him on the American charts. Yeah, to, and and to have come from where he came from, I mean, you know, as a five year old meeting, I think was he five years old when he met Johnny Cash at, at Festival Hall in Brisbane. Yeah, and, yeah, mean, yeah. kid from Caboolture. Yeah, yeah. You, you start there, and 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 my my brother was the. Uh, uh, involved in the Caboolture High School when when Keith was going through there, and uh, he, he he made his mark there. But then I don't think anyone, no one thought he was going to be what he is now. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, Kevin, he didn't make his mark academically. Oh, um, no. <laughs> he got out of school as soon as he could. Well, he's been a professional musician since the age of fifteen. He was never going to do anything else. Um, and he, you know, he certainly always had his heart and his mind set on Nashville um, because. That was the music, like I said, that he fell in love with as a kid. But it's a hard road to hoe. I mean, American um, audiences and Nashville in particular as a you know music center is not very welcomeing to outsiders. There's there's you know a thousand other people doing 
what Keith was trying to do in Nashville. And, uh, you know, to break through there, in fact, some ways his Australian-ness almost worked against him because uh, Americans are much more receptive to people who, you know, who, who are from there, who understand that, that market, that world much more clearly. But, you know, Keith adapted really well. And I think, um, I think a lot of Americans probably think he's American, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm you know, sure it was, hmm, yeah, like I say, but it was, it was a sound he was chasing and, you know, he, he was not slim dusty. Let me put it that way. You know, he was coming from a totally different place altogether musically. Yet the funny thing is, in his early days, his paths did cross with the Slim Dusties, the Reg Lindsays, uh, those those uh, Smokey Dawson, those iconic uh, sort of Australian. You couldn't get any any people more Australian uh, than than, mm. than those three in terms of even the songs they wrote, uh, with the probable exception of Armstrong for for Reg Lindsay. But you know the the stuff that Slim was writing and the and performing, the Joy was writing for him. Joy, his wife Joy McKean was writing. There is mm. Australian as uh, you know. Swatting a, a mosquito in the middle of a, you know the desert with a oh, can a, in your a flying an outdoor outdoor dunny absolutely <laughs> yeah but, but there's a great story actually because Keith recorded lights on the hill which you know is probably Joy McKean's best known song oh, great song and he did yeah and he did a sort of electric version and it caught Slim's ear and Slim's all was always a great supporter of of ta- up and coming talent and he invited Keith to come out on tour with him and this is early 90s, uh, Keith, by that time, he's looking like Billy Idol's younger brother. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's got a, a bleach blonde hair in a kind of spiky, punky look. He's wearing um, cut-off jeans and shirts that don't seem to have any buttons, you know, and playing playing loud rock and roll, basically, but to a country audience. And uh, so he goes out on tour a bit reluctantly and, and tones down his act. And after a couple of shows, Keith sat down with Slim and said, look, oh, you know, it's, it's an honour to be out here on tour with you, but it's, I just don't think it's working for me, Slim. And, and Slim said to him, well, you know, are you doing your normal show? And he said, well, well, no, because, you know, your audience is very different to mine. And Slim said to him, look, my audience uh, appreciates that if I invite someone like you out on tour with me, you've got my seal of approval. So just go out there and do your normal show. And he did, and he blew them away. They loved him. And, uh, you know, he and Slim stayed very, very tight right up until the time of Slim's death, you know, and Keith appears in the Slim and I documentary talking, you know, very um, uh, wholeheartedly about the relationship that they shared. You know, they may have come from different musical places, um, but Slim gave him a lot of good career advice too. So yeah. they remained really good friends. The photo of them in the book, they're an unlikely looking couple, uh, <laughs> but they were really, really good friends. And yeah, Slim was a great mentor to a lot of people like Keith. Yeah, uh, you're right about the look. The look was so not country music. Look, it was. <laughs> it couldn't have been further from what what we had as our you know our, our sort of image in our head of the ten gallon hat. And the uh, you know the shirt that uh, you could literally take a cataract out with the shininess of it that that whole <laughs> that, that whole country music he, look he completely he wasn't George Strait oh. that's for sure oh, yeah, yeah. well God. the funny thing one of the funny things Kevin is I talk about Keith adapting you know an American sound and style and so on the one thing he didn't do was wear the big hat and if you remember at that time the late nineties early two thousands everybody wore the hat oh, you yeah. know Alan Jackson Garth Brooks you know even some of the women wore the hat yep. um. But, of course, as I discovered in writing the book, there's a reason why Keith had better hair than most of them. You know, <laughs> if you had a peek under Garth's um, sets and instance, there wasn't much going on on top. So, uh, you know, and Kenny Chesney as well. A lot of these guys, they were hiding away the balding factor uh, by wearing the big hats. Keith didn't need to and still doesn't. Lucky bugger. Yes. 
Uh, he's never shied away from uh, from you know the darker side of of, of what's been part of his life. Mm-hmm. Look, I think, and that's that's a big factor in him hanging on to a really big audience for a long time. He's honest in frankness about that. Yep. You know, he's more than willing to sit down on the couch with Oprah or Ellen or any of those big American talk shows and admit to having demons in his past. You know, drug and alcohol problems, and a lot of it's to do with. Ego, you know, lack of success early on, um, dealing with the fact that, you know, in the mid-90s he'd finally come to America and thought he was about to achieve his dream only for it to, you know, really fall apart when he, like I say, he made that record with the branch that wasn't successful. Um, and, you know, he's been very frank about what he went through and, and, you know, the demons that I guess he still struggles with today. But uh, another interesting thing I found while researching the book is he gives a lot back. He's actually now a counsellor at one of the rehab centres that he went to when he was himself dealing with his own addiction. Uh, There's a a story I I relate of a new American country singer who started to fall apart in much the same way Keith did in the 90s and ended up in rehab and he was about to check himself out and the staff said, just stay one more day, please just stay one more day. And he did so very reluctantly, but then the next morning there was Keith, you know, just come in, not Keith Urban, you know, pop star, rock star, it was Keith Urban counsellor to talk about his problems and probably share some of his own experiences with him. So I thought that was really impressive. You know, he's a guy who very clearly gives a lot back. Yeah. Is there a, is there a more uh, well-known couple on the planet in the showbiz world than <laughs> he and Nicole these days? You know, they were at the next table when the whole brouhaha erupted at the Oscars recently. That's how well-connected they are. You know, uh, during the course I was speaking with someone who knows Keith very well and um, was watching the broadcast and sent him a text and said, gee, you're a bit close to the action. And apparently Keith replied saying, no, mate, I'm at ringside. You could take the boy out of Kabulcha, right? But there's still a little bit of it still there. So, yeah, look, very famous. You know, I don't think you could be more famous in the mainstream world when you bring together, you know, someone who's a big music star and a huge Hollywood star. It's um, it's it's a lot to deal with. I'm always very impressed that, you know, they'll be married for what? 15 years, um, and, you know, they seem as, as close and as tight as ever, and they do a great job of protecting their kids from uh, the scrutiny of the paparazzi. Yeah, and they do. Yet at the same time, live a very, you know, their careers are very public careers. It's, it's a really, must be a very tricky balancing act, uh, but they seem to do a pretty good job of it. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I don't know how. <laughs> Cause yeah, the, the- yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, you, you read too much about people like the Kardashians and so on who just seem to throw everything out there for public consumption. Well, somehow Keith and Nicole, while they're quite willing to share a lot about their careers and a little bit of their own lives, um, they're very, very cautious about their kids. And I think that's terrific. It's really commendable. It's, you know, a lot of celebrities would see their kids as an extension of their own celebrity, if that makes sense. Yeah, it and, does. Uh, oh, they, no. <laughs> they, they, they certainly don't do that. Um, there's a generation discovering him now as a judge on The Voice, which is which is another kind of uh, different career path for someone to have taken who's, who sits where he sits. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I, I sometimes, well, a lot of that goes back to when Keith was a kid. It was the time in Australia where, you know, I guess the equivalent of The Voice back then was Pot of Gold. Yep. You know, and, and, and Keith went on Pot of Gold when he was about nine and Bernard King was one of the judges, and, and I'm sure you're old enough, Kevin, to remember Absolutely. the old uh, acid-tongued Bernard King. And Keith performed a Dolly Parton song, and of course, 
King just rolled his eyes and tore him apart. And I think he said that, you know, country country and Western is an abomination. Don't ever come on this show playing that music again. And really tore the poor kid apart. Now, Keith has cited that repeatedly over the last, particularly over the last 10 years since he's become involved in American Idol and now The Voice. And I think what he's trying to do is, is sort of prove to people that not everyone is Bernard King. Because, you know, he's very empathetic and very supportive and, and very, um, you know, he's a, he's a mentor to these, these kids. But it must feel funny for a guy who came up the traditional way, that is playing thousands of shows in sweaty beer barns and pubs <laughs> and, you know, beer gardens and wherever they have you for a good, well, probably the first 10 or 15 years of his career um, to work with these kids who are looking for a shortcut. So uh, I think he, um, you know, I still think he's incredibly supportive, but there must be a little voice in his ear saying, oh, I'm not sure this is the right way to go about it. Yeah. Because none of those, you know, as history's proved, it's only, um, only Guy Sebastian's really maintained a career coming from that kind of area. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for the, the path that Keith trod, which, like I say, is playing everywhere and anywhere in any number of bands and situations for a good 15 years. Oh, and a well-trod path uh, that you've written about, uh, you know, the Bon Scots and uh, and the John Englishes Absolutely. of the world and the Mark Hunters and all that who did exactly the same thing Keith did. He just had a kind of a country bent on on where he wanted it to finish up. Yeah, yeah, look, I think we've got some of the best training ground. You know, we had the best training ground in the world for a lot of these performers, you know, people like NXS and ACDC who went on to huge international success. Well, they came out of that circuit, you know, where you'd play seven nights a week and you'd be constantly on the road and you'd be playing one night, it might be a you know, half-empty pub and the next night it might be 500 people on a Tuesday night somewhere in suburban Sydney, you know. It was a really good breeding ground. And, and Keith went through that with, as I say, a, a number of different bands. He played in one called, was it Rusty and the Airs Rockettes, you know, <laughs> yes. who, were like, who were like a jukebox band, you yeah. know, and he played in a duo and he did all kinds of different things basically to learn his chops and, you know, now look at him. He's one of the great performers. I think you get out and see him play live and he's playing to 10, 15,000 people at night. Uh, he's got a residency in Vegas, you know. He's yeah. doing some amazing things and a lot of that is on the you know the basis of Keith, uh, the performer, which is, you know, that's how he learned his chops. He really did. That, that was a great breeding ground. Yeah. He's got people now, but he didn't have people back then, and that's probably part of the reason why he's got people now is because he just did it himself and you you were as raw as you could possibly get back in those days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I shudder to think the amount of shows he's played over the – well, he's been a professional musician since he's 15, so that's yeah. almost 40 years now. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be slim, dusty numbers, I think. I mean, and the lovely, lovely moments too. Like, there's no way known that a, a performer doing what he's doing these days would be an opening act for Billy Connolly. Um, <laughs> just extraordinary. I read, yeah, I read that in the book and went, "My God, who would think to put Keith Urban back in those days uh, on with Billy Connolly as a support act?" Yeah, yeah. He played this trade. Well, that's a great story. I mean, Keith's the support act for Billy Connolly back in Billy' real heyday. I remember, you know, probably we're into the '80s now, and you know, Billy would come here particularly and draw huge audiences. Yeah. And Keith comes out, you know, playing his just acoustic guitar, playing solo, and broke a string. And it was the only guitar he had. And he's standing there in front of a few thousand people feeling like a fool. But Billy noticed it and whipped, suddenly grabbed his own guitar and sent it out on stage and, and saved Keith Bacon. So he's had all these really interesting encounters, as you say, with some pretty unlikely people. Um, but 
it's made in the musician ears today, that's for sure. I think yeah. now, though, Kevin, if you broke a string on stage, I'm pretty sure there's a few people going to help him out. Yeah, I think he's got people now, which is, you know, that's the beauty <laughs> of it. And that's a really funny, I mean, you talk about uh, the moment with, with, uh, with Slim uh, being support to Slim, being support to Billy Connolly. These days, a support actor gets nothing from, you know, or, the, or certainly in the heydays, they, you know, ACDC was supporting big bands around the, the place and half the lighting, half the sound, half the stage, that's what you've got. Go out there and see what you can do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, it's all part of that, that musical education, isn't it? You know, yeah. to learn to to deal with that uh, was really the making of so many of these artists, Keith included. Um, whether it's going to be the making of, you know, the bloke who came 15th in Eurovision, uh, I'm not so sure. You know? <laughs> I agree. Where does he sit for you in terms of when you talk about the people that you've written about? And we mentioned a couple of them, John English and, you know, Mark Hunter and, and Bon Scott and the Easy Beats and those people. Um, where, does, where does Keith Urban sit in there for you? Yeah, look, I'm always... Number one, I'm always interested in the journey of these people and in, in writing about and Keith is, is as interesting as anybody I've written about because yeah. of, you know, those uh, roadblocks that he hit along the way and the, this huge goal that he set himself. You know, he he talked about Nashville when he was a kid he even talked about Nashville as his destiny. Not his goal, but his <laughs> destiny. You know, he convinced that he belonged there. So I think on that level it's as interesting a story as anyone um, that I've charted musically I blow a bit hot and cold. Um, I don't think he's as good a songwriter as, you know, say, Vander and Young and people like that that I've written about. Yeah. Um, and he does collaborate with a lot of people as a songwriter. I think he's, um, his strengths are as a, a performer, as a musician, uh, you know, a very charismatic guy. But, you know, certainly from a writer's perspective, yeah, it's as interesting a journey as anybody I've written about from, you know, be it the Bee Gees or ACDC or, 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 or domestically people like John English. You yeah. know, it's... Uh, it was a, a huge ask, a huge task that he, he sort of burdened himself with and that he was absolutely hell-bent on, on achieving. And, you know, he's got there and he stayed there. That's the other impressive thing. You know, he's, he's been a star in America for 20 years. Uh, the Jeff Hafter whiteboard always intrigues me. Uh, now, you've, <laughs> you've done this one. Now, you mentioned you've, have you got another one already out or just about to come out or what, what's the situation? No, I'm chipping away at a book on Neil Finn. Actually, um, oh, good. someone you know whose music I've been charting for a good forty years, and, and really a fascinating guy who doesn't give too much of himself away publicly, unlike Keith. Yeah. So, um, hopefully, that's a book for next year. Oh, beautiful! Uh, as always, uh, congratulations on uh, on this book on Keith Urban, and as always, fascinating to read. Even if you're not the biggest Keith Urban fan, there's it, it is as you say, it's a great story. Uh, thanks for bringing it yep. to us. We appreciate it, and uh, look forward to the Neil Finn book. It's always a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for your time. We look forward to that Neil Finn book from Jeff Apter. He is a prolific writer and uh, just to suggest that maybe you go back and have a look at uh, some of the other books that he's done. We've talked about the uh, the George Young book on this podcast. We've talked about the John English book on this podcast, but there's plenty of others, books on Mark Hunter and the Easy Beats and a whole lot more. So Jeff's got some terrific work there. So highly recommend it. And uh, this one's a beauty too on Keith Urban. Uh, also, go back and have a listen to some of our previous episodes of the podcast. Uh, we've done crime, we've done fiction, we've done cooking books, we've done a whole lot of things, kids' books, everything's in there. So if uh, you're looking for something to have a listen to while you may be going for a walk or even just snuggled up on these wintry moments that we've got, uh, wherever you found this uh, podcast episode, you'll find plenty more of Authorised. Uh, hope you enjoy those. Till the next time, uh, make sure you, uh, if you have a financial situation that you uh, you want some help with, 
uh, or you'd like your financial picture to be a little brighter, uh, the people that help us with this podcast are the people you should talk to. That's CSCG. Double nine seven four eight triple three is their number, CSCG.com.au. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Read a book. Might be the author we're talking to next. <laughs>